1: You know, for years we've been hearing warnings about the threat of overpopulation. And indeed, Earth's population has surpassed 8 billion. I mean, we're all still here. The sky hasn't fallen. But maybe we need to rethink what it is we're concerned about when it comes to population a reversal. Population not growing, but in fact declining. Now, to some, especially if you view overpopulation as a threat, a declining population might be seen as a good thing, might be seen as a relief, might be seen as easing some of the pressure on our planet. There's a lot more involved in that. But regardless of whether you think it's a good or a bad thing, it's certainly something we need to be aware of and to better understand. To that end, there's an interesting piece in the Globe and Mail today on how population decrease is irreversible and how we need to start thinking about managing that decline. And it's something our next guest has been talking about and writing about for some time. Co-authors of this op-ed are also co-authors of the book, Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. One of them is Daryl Bricker, CEO at Ipsos Public Affairs. The other, our guest here this afternoon, John Ibbotson, writer at large at The Globe and Mail. John, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Hey, Rob. It still seems like the the overpopulation issue looms. I, I think when we surpassed eight billion, it, it kind of brought that conversation back to the forefront. What's the case here, though, for recognizing population decline as maybe the real trend or the real threat? Yes,
2: yeah, So, Jared uh, and I came out with uh, Empty Planet in 2019, and at the time, it was seen as a bit of an outlier—the idea that the population's uh, the, the planet's population would peak in mid-century and then start to go down. And mm-hmm. then once it started to go down, uh, it would continue to go down and, and not much could stop it. Um, that sort of props without honor uh, for our argument of 2019 is almost conventional wisdom now today. And that's partly because so many countries around the world are uh, reporting such remarkably steep drops in their fertility rate. Uh, A fertility rate of 2.1 is needed, that it is 2.1 children on average per woman, is needed to sustain a population. Daryl and I, in our update that uh, we published in The Globe today, um, have now pointed to 36 countries around the world that are losing population every year. And one of them is China. Uh, Well, up until this year, uh, China was the most populous nation on Earth. China started to lose population last year. It's going to lose around half of its population. Half of its 1.3 billion people uh, will disappear over the course of this century. And then the other big news, we reported in empty planet that the uh, Indian uh, fertility rate was coming down rapidly. Well, it's now below replacement rate. Uh, The Indian government says that it will start losing population in about three decades. Um, and it could be even sooner if fertility rates decline faster. So with the exception of sub-Saharan Africa now, there's just about no place on Earth uh, where the fertility rate is either, um, where where the fertility rate is above the the replacement rate of 2.1. And that leads now to a kind of fairly confident projection that the planet's population is going to start to decline sooner rather than later, and once that decline starts, it's never going to stop. And that has some big implications for our society going
1: forward. It's interesting. There's maybe a bit of a complacency here in Canada because when you look at the numbers, uh, our population is growing. And so on the surface, it makes it seem like, OK, you know, this, this isn't such a big issue here. But that, that's masking a lot of issues, isn't it?
2: It is. Uh, we, there are three ways you can try to reverse population decline. One is through immigration, and that's the Canada solution. Um, we've all, Ever since the days of Brian Mulroney, we've been bringing in hundreds of thousands of people every year. but The number for 2025 is projected to be 500,000 people. Um, and that keeps our population growing. But there are two problems. Uh, one is, of course, we have to put them somewhere. Uh, so if you bring in 500,000 people, that means 500,000 dwelling units have to be found. 500,000 uh, doctors have to be found for 500,000 new people. And the other more medium-term problem is that we're running out of source countries. China used to be by far our largest source of immigrants. It's now a very poor second. Um, India gets is responsible for about 30% of our intake now. But as you said, India's going to start losing population um, in, in a couple of decades as well. Philippines, a huge, population, or huge fertility rate decreases in the last five years in the Philippines. So again, we may be struggling to find places uh, where you can actually bring people in to sustain uh, our very high immigration levels. So that will be more of a challenge as we go forward.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I mean, as you alluded to, I mean, a growing population, bringing in hundreds of thousands of immig- immigrants, there there are challenges with that, that growth. But the challenges of population decline, there's a quote in your piece from Japan's prime minister, and it's pretty stark, right, <laughs> talking about that, that country's challenges. Japan is standing on the verge of whether we can continue to function as a society. Like, that's quite a statement. So why is it so worrying for these countries that are now starting to see these declines?
2: And you're starting to see uh, much the same in Canada as well, though not as severe. Japan is, mm-hmm. is sort of the leader in the population decline in sweepstakes. Look, it's great for the environment. Let's get this right off the top. Fewer people on the earth means less of a stress on biodiversity, less of a stress on air and land and water, um, and it will aid in fighting against global warming. So the environmental side... It's great news. Um, And if the environment is your primary concern, this is a good news story. But there are economic consequences. When you have fewer people born each year than were born the year before, and that is the inevitable consequence of below replacement level fertility, you have two things happening. First of all, society gets old. The average age increases. So there are more old people as a share of the overall society. They need health care. They need pensions. They need all the things that older people like me need. And you have fewer young people every year available to sustain those pensions, so their taxes are available to sustain the health care system. Not only are there fewer people to pay taxes, but our economy runs on consumption, right? People buying houses, buying cars, buying refrigerators, buying all the things that people buy. That's what powers economic growth. If you have fewer young people, then you have fewer people buying those cars and houses because older people tend to not to buy as much. They've got the stuff that they need. So you impair economic growth by having fewer young people, the labor force uh, shortages get worse, and the imbalance in taxation versus revenue gets worse every year. If it goes on long enough, it's been going on now for three decades in Japan, you start to basically the very fundamentals of society start to be called into question, and that's what Japan is
1: facing. So in terms of responding to this, you know, you, you focus in the piece on the situation in, in Hungary, the Hungarian solution, the idea of a government really dedicating itself to incentivizing births, encouraging women, families to, to, to have more babies. What can we observe and learn from what's been going on on, on that side of things in Hungary?
2: Well, we can learn that it's very expensive and it doesn't work. So, yes, Yes. the Hungarian government uh, really does not want immigrants. It wants Hungary for the Hungarians. It doesn't want anybody coming in. Uh, And it's losing people uh, to out-migration to other parts of the world. And it has a low fertility rate. So the government's position has been that the way to reverse this is basically paying women to have babies. Um, A new uh, policy that just came into effect last month um, essentially says that any woman under 30 who gives birth to a kid no longer has to pay income tax. Um, if you have a family of four, the government subsidies are so generous that you basically, it's, it's your income uh, looking after that families. or housing subsidies, car subsidies, tax subsidies. Um, but it's a very expensive uh, proposition. 5% of Hungary's GDP just goes to the maintenance of families. And it doesn't seem to work all that well. Uh, it did uh, produce a temporary bump when the policies were enacted. Um, in the last decade. That bump appears to be di- to have disappeared. Um, the last data that we saw suggests that Hungary's fertility rate is around 1.5, 1.6. Well, Canada's is 1.4. So they're pour- pouring an awful lot of money into not getting much in the way of results. And on top of that, it's really obnoxious. The idea of tr- encouraging women to leave the workforce, go back in the home and have babies is, we think, um, not only... Uh, a poor solution. It is an, it's a, It's an insult, frankly, uh, to women in Hungary and everywhere else.
1: Well, which brings us to Sweden. Sweden is also trying to encourage women to have more babies, but a very different approach. What about what they're trying in Sweden?
2: Yeah, so there is this the flip of Hungary. There, the case is, how can we encourage Uh, couples to have children uh, while protecting the rights of the mother, especially to have have her career, not have it compromised. So there are very generous uh, parental leaves. Uh, Parental leave is structured to encourage the father as well as the mother to take part of that leave. There's all sorts of supports for um, uh, families who have people who have to leave work because uh, the child is sick, for example. If basically, if you're one year of age or older, you're in preschool in Sweden. So they've made it um, you know, much easier for couples to have kids without either of the mother or the father uh, feeling that their careers are being damaged, especially the mothers. The problem is, same with Hungary, it's very, very expensive. Um, Sweden has a, a tax rate of over 50%. Um, and again, it doesn't seem to work all that well. Uh, Sweden's fertility rate is not much different from Hungary's rate, fertility rate, which is not that much, much different from Canada's fertility rate. So, look, it's great to put programs in place that, that make it possible for couples to have kids with, you know, and still be able to pursue their careers. These are good things in and of themselves. But if it's just an attempt to get your fertility rate up plus, up to 2.1 or higher, it doesn't seem to work all that well.
1: Which, right, I mean, there, there's kind of a pessimistic takeaway from all of that then is that, that none of this really seems to work. Uh, countries can try, maybe try a combination of some of these approaches, like the Canadian approach to immigration, maybe the Swedish approach. Some combination of the two might slow things down, but we're, we're kind of stuck in this trend for now, it seems.
2: For the foreseeable future, yeah, and uh, that's what we came to the conclusion uh, in this update, that we have really no choice but to accept the fact that fertility uh, declines are permanent. Um, there's a, The Pew Research Center in the United States, which is a very, very fine thing, uh, did a survey on unmarried couples, and it found that uh, 56% of them uh, didn't plan to have kids just because. They just liked the thought of being able to travel, the freedom of, of being childless. There were other reasons as well. Uh, they were put forward, medical reasons, people who waited to give uh, birth until it uh, became challenging for them to do so, uh, economic reasons, the cost of bringing a kid into the world with housing prices the way they are. But most people who weren't having kids just said, we don't feel like it. Um, and that is an attitude that has now become entrenched uh, within societies. And that really, can't be, that really can't be changed. So we have to look at the, at least for the foreseeable future, this could change a generation, two generations from now, who knows. But for the foreseeable future, at least, we have to live with this reality of declining fertility, of, uh, of many couples not wanting to have kids, um, and, uh, and the economic and social challenges that flow from that.
1: Right, Maybe it's going to take the shock of seeing those declines or seeing some of those consequences to to prompt kind of a a societal rethink, right? Maybe that happens a generation or two down the road.
2: It may. uh, We're not there to predict. uh, We're there to describe. So we're telling you what is happening in society now, what has been happening in society for a couple of generations. And we can predict in the short term, within the next generation or so, that nothing that is happening is going to be reversible. But seventy five hundred years from now will people decide that they that they really want to start having more kids or finding ways to produce children one way or another um, that's not for Daryl and I me mean, to say yeah, it's for us to describe what's going on right now
1: right, and in the meantime that means to brace to to prepare
2: so yeah, for example, um, you know Daryl and I are, are good capitalists we love capitalism, but capitalism is built on the, uh, presumptions of economic growth. There are people out there um, you know arguing for degrowth. Now, they're arguing for it uh, on an environmental basis, that you need to actually, you know, stop growing your economy, stop growing your population, because that's the only way you can fight global warming. Um, the I, you know, are not on the side of saying this is a good thing at all, but we're predicting it might end up being uh, the result of population decline. We could see an anti-economic growth produced by nothing more than the fact that there aren't enough people around to generate that growth.
1: Well, this piece is up today at theglobeandmail.com. The book we mentioned as well, Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. John Ibbotson, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Hey, thanks, Rob. Much appreciated. All the best. That is uh, John Ibbotson, a writer at large of The Globe and Mail, co-author of Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. And we're already starting to see it. Some countries are further down this path than we are. That's, I think, what we need to be focused on or worried about.
0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
1: The first under Premier Danielle Smith, I guess as far as the opposition are concerned, maybe uh, the last, they're hoping, uh, under this premier. But it's in a lot of respects a pre-election budget, pretty heavy on spending, still manages to deliver a modest surplus, thanks in large part to a pretty big gusher of resource revenues this year, just over $18 billion. Uh, So balancing the budget under those circumstances is a lot easier. Let's put it that way. But how much of an expectation should it be each and every year the governments deliver a balanced budget? To me, I think it's good fiscal policy, regardless of whether maybe you're on the right or on the left. If you support smaller government and smaller taxes, make sure that that matches, right? What you're spending is equivalent to what you bring in. But that applies on the left, too. If you believe in in more generous social programs, bigger government, then I think you have an obligation to go out and find the tax revenue to pay for all of that. There are exceptional circumstances. What we saw in 2020 and 2021 would be a good example, where running deficits was probably a necessity. But that's subjective. When is it okay? When is it necessary? When is borrowing justified? To me, ultimately, I think that's part of the democratic process. When it comes to fiscal policy and other matters of governing, you know, it's up to us as voters to decide whether governments made the right decision. Now, what's interesting is Alberta did have a law brought in by Ralph Klein that required the budget be balanced, a balanced budget law. It didn't last very long, not surprisingly. Uh, Since then, we've had a lot of deficits, more deficits than surpluses for sure, by a wide margin. We've also had a lot of premiers over that time. Maybe that's a coincidence, maybe not. Anyway, one of the aspects coming out of the budget this year is the plan moving forward to once again make it mandatory for governments to balance the budget, to bring back a balanced budget law. How meaningful is that, given the governments can ignore that law, can change that law, can repeal that law? Maybe there's other ways of enshrining that. Joining us for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Ted Morton executive fellow with the school of public policy professor emeritus of political science of the university of Calgary, of course, of course a former finance minister here in the province of alberta himself ted Morton. great to have you with us how you doing
3: good afternoon rob uh, good to be with you again
1: so what do you make of of this talk of uh, once again bringing back or bringing in uh, a balanced budget law
3: well as you might imagine i'm i'm uh, i support it i think it's a move in the right direction but I think you also know I I've, I've written about this in the past and mm-hmm. uh I fear that unless it's uh constitutionally entrenched in other words put beyond reach of the next uh, the next government that wants to win the next election and by uh, spending a lot that it uh it won't stand up. I was I was there in uh the early 2000s when we uh began to ignore the Klein law and finally uh uh finally uh, repealed it. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't care what political party it is, almost any party in power is going to put short-term partisan interest winning the next election ahead of the public good, which, as you just said, uh, is a balanced budget.
1: Well, but it's interesting because winning an election means getting votes from the public. So if if the public is okay with something, isn't it by definition then we've decided collectively that it is the public good
3: yeah alberta is uh in a unique place we're both blessed and cursed with these uh large renewable uh, non-renewable revenue Mm -hmm. sources from oil and gas and uh in good times when prices are high uh it means that the government can spend a lot of money that 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 the vote that voters and alberta residents aren't directly paying for right most other most other jurisdictions, if you want more health care, more schools, better roads, cleaner water, you have to pay for it with taxes. In Alberta, uh, a lot of it is paid for uh, by uh, revenues for, from oil and gas. Right. Uh, but, of course, oil and gas is a non-renewable resource. It's going to run out at some point. And also, it's extremely volatile. And so the concerns that I've had and uh, many other, I guess, academics that have who step back and look at it is, if you spend like crazy in the good times, uh, <clears throat> then inevitably oil and gas prices decline. You're left with deficits. And again, uh, I would ask you and and and, and whose list people are listening today. When Ralph Klein became premier in 1992, the debt, the deficits um, created by the previous decade, mainly by the Getty government. The interest on the debt was consuming over 20 percent of all government revenues. In other words, the government was in the situation that, you know, sometimes our teenagers get into where they're paying more uh, on their credit cards than uh, they are even than they can afford. Right. Twenty over 20 percent. So that's non-sustainable. And as you said, not in the public interest.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, this all this borrowing is not consequence free, as we've seen. Uh, there exactly. are circumstances where it makes sense, and and that's a that slippery slope isn't the right way to describe it, but it's subjective. I mean, the Great Recession of two thousand nine, okay, maybe it made sense at the time. The the COVID pandemic, sure, okay, it probably made sense at the time. But once you sort of concede that, okay, sometimes it's okay to run deficits. How, how do you quantify or define that?
3: Again, I, I think I've uh, I, I I alerted you to that paper I wrote back in twenty eighteen. That looked at some of uh, what some of the u s states do, and most of them i think i think forty nine of the fifty states have balanced budget laws, but they usually build in some flexibility to the effect that the budget has to be balanced say over a four year span, and again, as in Alberta now, in most states, four years is the term between elections, so it allows deficits for a year or two to deal with emergencies or mm-hmm. declines in revenues, but the mandate is before you go to the next election, um, you got to get back to uh, back to uh, no debt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that kind of flexibility can be built in to deal with the unforeseen events that, that you correctly uh, referred
1: to. Right. And there's the other aspect to all of this, because just as governments can bring in laws, governments can repeal laws. So a future government that's inclined to want to run a deficit, they feel like they need to or they want to run a deficit – uh, that government can you know, table legislation to amend the law or just repeal it outright. So are, are there other levels of protection here? Is there a different way of enshrining this?
3: Yeah, well, this this was the point of the piece I wrote a couple of years ago, that you bring in a balanced budget law such as this, such as Premier Klein did. Uh, you bring in uh, a, a fiscal framework, which is also something that uh, uh, Minister Taves brought in in terms of, uh, growth and expenditures, this is all fine, and it works as long as in Alberta as long as you have strong oil and gas prices and strong uh, revenues coming to the government for that for that purpose. but when they don't, then you're in trouble and uh and you get the pattern that we we've seen so what I argued for and and what most states have u s states have is that these rules—the balanced budget rule, the, the the increase in spending rules—are constitutionally entrenched? In other words, they can't be can't be changed uh, by a simple majority vote. And of course, by definition, in our in uh, our parliamentary system, the government of the day, by definition, has a majority. So you have to put for these for these rules to work, you have to put them beyond the reach of. A simple majority vote, and that means some type of constitutional entrenchment. That means to change them, you either have to have much more than just a fifty percent vote, and or a um, a, a vote uh, a vote uh, to the public
1: to approve to approve it. Well, and that's quite a process, though. Changing the constitution is not easy.
3: No, it, it's it's not easy, and provincial constitutions in Canada are somewhat complex but uh we in in alberta twice in the last uh in the, in the four decades i've been here um governments have passed laws that cannot be that are semi-constitutional in the sense that they can't simply be repealed by the next government one is uh something most people aren't aware of something called the metis settlements act back in 1989 and then also another i think it was a Klein, yeah, yeah Klein, uh a Klein uh, rule that said any constitutional amendments that Alberta is being asked to approve must first be put to a uh, to a, uh, a vote, uh, not not a vote in the legislature, but a uh, a vote uh, for of all Albertans.
1: Well, yeah, and it'll be interesting to see where this all goes because we're we're in a phase right now where you know, balancing the budget's a lot easier. We, we've got, you know, pretty substantial resource revenues. But, I mean, do we need to get to a conversation? We're not just, you know, we're talking about better fiscal policy. You know, we're looking at the whole picture. Do we need to change our approach to resource revenue? Should we rely less on it? Uh, all of these kinds of conversations that it feels like we kind of keep kicking down the road here in Alberta.
3: Well, uh, some people would say it's it, we're a bit too late. But if you if you look at how other... Uh, resource-rich jurisdictions have managed this blessing and the curse. It's both a blessing and a curse. The two other examples are Alaska and Norway. They've done a much better job of taking uh, non-renewable resource revenues, putting them beyond the immediate reach of the government of the day, and using those revenues, the earnings this is what the Alberta Heritage uh, Savings Trust Fund was supposed to do, that the revenues go into that, and then the only thing that governments can access are the earnings off of that. That's how Norway has, and, and Norway now has something over a trillion dollars in what is the equivalent of uh, our our Heritage Savings Trust Fund. So it's not too late to do that. It's too bad we didn't stick with the rule back the way Lawhead set it up. In, uh, In the 1970s, but the reason we didn't, again, was because it was just by statute. It wasn't constitutionally uh, entrenched. And so any government of the day, and uh, by the mid-1980s, the Getty government could go in and fiddle with that so they could get their hands on resource revenues to do more spending and try and win the next election.
1: We'll leave it there Uh, for now. We'll see where things go on on this front. Uh, Ted Morton, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon.
3: You're welcome, Rob.
1: Much appreciated. There you. Uh, you go. That's uh, former Alberta Finance Minister Ted Morton, Executive Fellow of the uh, School of Public Policy, Professor Emeritus, Political Science at the University of Calgary. Uh, so, his belief that yes, we should have a, a balanced budget law. We should go one step further and, and constitutionally enshrine that, that would actually put some teeth behind it. And it's one thing for a government to ignore or repeal a law, but if something's in the Constitution, that has a lot more weight. Welcome back. Really, the only trains uh, that exist in Alberta are the ones that can take you from one part of Edmonton to another or one part of Calgary to another. Uh, LRT, as it's known. In terms of passenger rail, it doesn't really exist. And, and frankly, you know, it's an issue right across the country. Uh, there are some roads. There's the, you know, Windsor to Quebec City corridor where via rail runs. But for Albertans, taking the train isn't really an option. But should it be? You know, I a conversation about our future energy needs, transportation needs. Uh, should passenger rail be a bigger part of the conversation? Now, there's been some momentum. You will talk of, you know, the, the merits or the value of an Edmonton to Calgary train link. Uh, there's a group that's pushing for a Calgary to Banff train link. Is it something that Alberta needs to look at? Well, there's a, a group that is uh, act, actively pushing for exactly that. There was an interesting uh, op-ed that ran this week in post-media. It's time for Alberta to get on board with passenger rail. So what is the case for passenger rail? What is the cost of passenger rail? Is the demand really there. Joining us uh, to talk more about all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Justin Similuk, president of Rail for Alberta. We're at railalberta.com. Justin, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob, it's good to be here. Tell us a bit more about your organization, first of all uh yeah we're just
4: uh we're a pretty small grassroots organization that started with some groups of you know friends engineers who like to travel and you know we we come back to Alberta after doing these trips and then we start questioning you know how how we get around our province and what what are the decisions that we do to get to get around the province and we kind of came up with this idea that you know we're we're a pretty urbanized place and we can be using different ways to move around Alberta. And we think that trains are the best way to do it. Right. And why?
1: Why trains?
4: You know, a lot of people kind of question that up about, you know, like we have highways and we have buses or whatever. But, you know, trains are fast, they're comfortable, they're sustainable, they're good for the environment. They kind of hit all those points that governments who talk about climate change and development and sustainability... James kind of hit all those points on what governments say they want to achieve. So that's the focus that we've kind of pushed towards.
1: Okay. So when we talk about uh, passenger rail, I mean, like I say, there's been a couple different ideas that have sort of been out there. Uh, you know, Edmonton to Calgary seems to be the, the focal point. So is, is that what you envision here? What about other projects like potentially, you know, Calgary to Banff that there's been some talk about?
4: ideally we'd like trains to go to every major center in the province calgary to edmonton is obviously you know kind of the the jewel the big easy win if you may you know um the provinces we're supposed to grow by millions of people in the next 20 years i think the calgary edmonton corridor is supposed to have 80 percent of our population and have over 5 million people by 2050 so there's a lot of transportation that's lacking and a lot of choices that aren't being given to albertas and when we force everybody to drive we kind of take away their freedoms to choose how they want to get around so with our current system of forcing everybody into cars and forcing everybody onto highways you know there's there's lots of problems that comes with those every time it, it seems like every time we get a light snow there's massive car crashes you know the qe2 gets closed and it kind of comes off as very dystopian that we have this system that kind of allows and promotes these things so um calgary to edmonton would obviously be a great first choice but you know there's this group that wants to train out to banff and with the recent road closures and problems that banff has been having with vehicle congestion it's one of those things that just makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and, and, I mean, I'm somebody over the use has gone back and forth a lot between the two cities. And so generally, there's, there's three options that people have. They can drive, um, you know, which you have the convenience of your car, but it's potentially some of the other issues that you alluded to. There's the option of taking the bus, uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's maybe more affordable than flying, uh, not quite as quick. Flying's the other option where you can get from Edmonton to Calgary or vice versa pretty quickly, but there's a cost. So... With those three options in mind, you know, is there enough of an advantage on any of those points that, that passenger trains would have?
4: Absolutely. Um, the recent, though not recent, but the studies that have been done between a train between Calgary and Edmonton, uh, it'll, it'll beat flying time-wise, hands down. And then you get the benefits of going city center to city center if you need. Or, you know, depending on how a system gets built, it doesn't need to be one stop just in one city. And there's benefits to those commun- communities <clears throat> along the way where they're getting direct connections into these major centers too. So, you know, you can live in a place like Crossfield and have a very easy commute that's fast or reliable, a lot more reliable than having to drive on the QE2 when it snows. So. We think there's passenger demand there, like the studies in the province have said that there's passenger demands there, but it's just whether, we, you know, we want to get past this idea that trains are not what we should use. And I think we've become so far removed from using trains to get around, specifically in Western Canada, that it's almost forgotten about how good they can actually be for communities
1: what about the cost like what's a reasonable figure do you think for uh, a passenger rail link between edmonton and calgary and is that something government should fund is that user funded like how how do we get over that obstacle
4: i mean there's there's always a cost to everything and it's hard to say like how much would it cost because it kind of depends on what you want to do like if you want to put a high-speed train down it's going to cost more money if you want something a little bit slower that connects more communities then you know you're gonna you're gonna lower your costs down like that too, but as far as it goes, you know like transportation's a service that we provide in this province. You know we don't we don't charge people to we don't charge people to use highways. We don't expect public transit to make money. And if we're gonna you know look at this region of Calgary and Edmonton as more of a mega region and more economic potential, then we should. Looking at the cost of what it is is kind of the wrong question. we should be looking at the cost of what it, what inaction is going to cost
1: us well okay, but I mean you know WestJet makes money and flying people from from Edmonton to calgary i mean if if it was via rail running people back and forth I mean they're they're a private entity but I mean do you envision this more as a, a public service like public transit but you know on a bigger scale
4: i mean it it all depends it all depends on the route that would, it would want to go like you know via rails a semi-private entity, I guess, with heavily sure. subsidized. Yeah. But, like, VIA doesn't necessarily provide the service that we would need in Alberta. And, you know, it's, it's almost to the point where I would say we don't even have a passenger train with VIA. And, you know, we'd like the government to look into this more so that we could have this made-in-Alberta transportation solution instead of having to hope that Ottawa could possibly bail us out of something and we could have a little bit more control over Giving Albertans those options of how they do
1: want to move around. So, should we be looking if we're going to go down this path, looking at you know high speed rail then, for example?
4: There's there's like very few places in the world where high speed rail can make a lot of sense, um, and they're usually coupled you know city pairs. Calgary and Edmonton could be a good place for high speed rail, but. I think when you go the high-speed rail route, you really do miss out on those local connections. You know, Mm -hmm. the Crossbury, the the Crossfield, the Didsbury, you know, the Pinocas, the Leducs, those kind of things. And those are the communities that I think would really benefit the most from having direct rail lines in their cities, which, you know, they have them already. It's just that we don't utilize them. You know,
1: there's... We we just had a budget come down this week. I mean, it doesn't seem like this is a, a priority item for the Alberta government or any other level of government. I mean, are, are, what's your level of optimism that you know this this is going to happen in our lifetime?
4: You know, there was a lot of lead up to budget of the premier talking about passenger trains. Um, passenger rail is really kind of an all party. Um, it's kind of supported by all parties in general like in ontario the progressive conservatives are really going hard on regional rail transportation in toronto the ndp in bc is really pushing to connect seattle and vancouver the liberal government's obviously doing with quebec city windsor right. um you know they gave that five million dollars to do to look into making calgary airport a major transportation hub so while we would hope for more money to progress this stuff a bit further i think like there's a good step with that five million dollars to start getting the ball rolling and with the train to Banff, you know there's lots of opportunities to build on that because like i said we've been pretty far removed from doing this so if we can just start somewhere and then build off that strong backbone of a good system then we can kind of like expect more and more in the future
1: Really interesting. Much more, as mentioned, railalberta.com. Justin, appreciate the conversation here this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Right on. Thanks a lot. All right. Cheers. Uh, Justin Similuk, president of Rail for Alberta, railalberta.com. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not sold. I mean, if all of a sudden we snapped our fingers and tomorrow it existed and you could hop on a train, yeah, maybe. I mean, it would depend on, okay, well, what does it cost, first of all? Uh, Because like I say, you've got some options right now. If you want to get from Calgary to Edmonton or Edmonton to Calgary, you can hop in your car and drive. It's pretty convenient. You know, you just, you get in and go. And once you're there, you've got your car to do whatever it is you need to do. So there's an advantage there. Uh, There's still, you know, you can take the bus. There's still Red Arrow or what is it? The e-bus, which again, you don't have your vehicle when you get there. But it's kind of convenient. You know, you can sit back and work on your laptop or have a nap or read or whatever. And you don't have to worry about driving. So there's that. You can take a plane. Now, the pla- flight itself is quick. But, yeah, it's, you know, when you got to get to the airport early, it takes away from all of that. So that, that's an issue. So what would be the selling point of rail? Beyond, oh, it's new and cool, yeah, that's only going to get so far. Like, it's got to have some advantage. What's the advantage? If it's not high-speed rail, it's not really speed. I don't know how affordable it would be, depending on how much we plan to subsidize it. That would be my concern, that I don't know that it would necessarily stand out as a more attractive option than those other three, but maybe I'm missing something.
0: Eight, yeah. 7, oh, 6, five, wow, 4, 3, 2, 1.
4: Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Awaiting visual confirmation. All right. We got it? Waiting. 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 And we have and we impact.
1: Yeah, that was in September, the impact. Uh, This was the NASA DART mission, this rocket impacting an asteroid, slamming into it at a high rate of speed with the express purpose of affecting that asteroid. The whole idea here was to see if an asteroid were coming toward us, if an asteroid were set to collide with Earth and potentially represent an existential threat, could we do anything about it? Could we stop it from happening? Now, it's been the stuff of science fiction, like the movie Armageddon, where they train the uh, oil rig drillers to be astronauts, and they basically go and blow up an asteroid. It all works out well in the end. You don't need to blow up an asteroid, which is the good news. You just need to affect its route, its speed, that if it's set to intersect with us, Make sure it gets there sooner or gets there later. That was the idea here. So on September 26, 2002, the Dart rocket crashed into this uh, asteroid, Dimorphos. Now, that rock posed no threat to us, but it was selected as a test to see if we could do this. So the impact proved part of that, that, yes, we did it. The rocket hit the rock, step one. But did it work Now, initially, in the aftermath of the impact, there were some very positive signs that, yes, indeed, we did slow its orbit. We did knock it off by about, initially, they thought, seven minutes. Well, some new studies published in the journal Nature this week show that this was even more of a success than we initially realized. This test, the impact, shortened the orbit by a full 33 minutes, which is big. So we'll get into the details here, but the takeaway here is that we do have this tool. We need to refine it. We need to keep working on it. But should we ever face that kind of existential threat? We're not helpless. Joining us to talk more about these studies and what we now know about the success of the DART mission, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon. uh, The lead on these investigations, Dr. Christina Thomas, is an assistant professor of the Department of Astronomy and Planetary Science at Northern Arizona University. Professor Thomas, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about how we're measuring the success of this, first of all. I mean, there you know, there's the two big boxes that this tick, the the ability to crash into this asteroid, the ability to change its its orbit. But let's talk a bit more about what it is that, that these studies were looking at.
0: Uh, well, we had a number of different papers come out. And as you noted, uh, you know, two of these big questions were addressed in these papers. And so the first one was, you know, how well um, did we do with the impact? So where did we impact onto the target? Um, and thinking about all of the steps that led up to that impact. Um, and also we looked at how big of a change we had in the object's orbit. And so just to you know to remind folks who may not be thinking about this, we impacted into the moon of a, a larger near-Earth asteroid. And so this moon is called Dimorphos and it, it circles around Didymos and it used to do, take nearly 12 hours to do that um and then we impacted it in a way so that we could reduce the amount of time that it took to make uh, one orbit and and so we actually reduced that orbit by about 33 minutes
1: right and 33 minutes and and just to, to focus on that for a minute because that's quite significant and, and there were some expectations about what this might be able to do in terms of changing its orbit but that seems to have exceeded expectations tell us a bit more about that
0: Right. And so if you think about this as uh, two very solid bodies, right, you have the spacecraft and the asteroid. If there are two solid bodies that are kind of like a billiard ball experiment, um, then you expect that we would only have changed the orbit by about seven minutes. Um, but the thing that we were hoping to measure uh, was what happens when you don't have a solid body, when your asteroid is actually what we call a rubble pile. Uh, it's made of a bunch of smaller Um, objects that are held together by gravity and and static forces and things of that nature. And so when you impact your spacecraft into that, a lot of material is gonna be ejected uh, from the object. And that material has its own momentum with it. And so it's kind of like an extra kickback to the system that adds to that uh, orbital motion change. Um, And so we were trying to measure uh, what we call that momentum enhancement. And so that's essentially what's all tied up in that ejected material. And so, like I said, if we only had solid objects, we would see a period change of about seven minutes. And so to get something that's 33 minutes means that that ejected material had a lot of energy associated with it, which is huge because that means um, that we can count on that ejected material if we actually needed to use um, a kinetic impactor like this one impacting a spacecraft into an asteroid should we need to use it for asteroid deflection in the future.
1: And this is important. I think maybe, you know, to, to the layman, there's sort of a, a perception that if an asteroid's coming at us, it's just kind of barreling at us in, in a straight line. And whether we slow it down or speed it up, it's still coming at us. But essentially the threat is that our orbit could intersect with its orbit or an asteroid's orbit. So if we're changing uh, its trajectory, if we're altering its course in that sense, then that would mean it, it would miss us, Right.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's uh, you know I like to think of this as if uh, two cars were headed to the same intersection and were going to collide in that intersection. If one of those cars was to speed up or slow down, they would both go through the same intersection, but at different times. So that collision would no longer take place.
1: Right. Uh, so making the collision was, was you know, part of the challenge here, and, and that was one of the aspects that the study looked at, our, our ability to target what would be large space rocks, but from this distance, you know, we're really zeroing in on something that, that comparatively is is quite tiny. So what, what do these studies tell us about our ability to detect and to target objects like this? Uh, you know,
0: there's a, a couple of sides to that. You know, the first side is that we spent years uh, observing this system before the impact uh, with telescopes on the ground. And so using all of those telescopes, we were actually able to get a pretty precise understanding of exactly where it would be in space, uh, which was really important uh, for the overall trajectory from the moment that we launched. Uh, but once we got there uh, and were approaching, we had a really great system called SmartNav, um, which was essentially taking images of that system and using those images uh, to make slight changes to the trajectory so that we could stay right on track. Um, and there are a couple of really great videos that have been put out with various different press releases of exactly how the object was centered in the frame. And for anyone who saw um, the images that were coming down right before impact, you saw that we actually did a really phenomenally good job. You know, the asteroid was uh, directly in the the center of the frame as we were approaching and we did a very nice job of hitting uh very very close to the center of the object
1: so what's the the framework here that this helps to establish where do we go from here then in terms of you know starting to to build something that could be a a potential defense that in the future we might be able to target something uh, that actually is a threat to us
0: Right. So there's two sides to to planetary defense. And so kind of the next question here is, all right, well, let's move forward with discovering more of these objects, especially objects that are in the size range that Dimorphos is in. And so the next uh, mission out of NASA's Planetary Defense Coordination Office is called NEO Surveyor, and that's going to be a space-based telescope that is uh, charged with discovering these objects. Uh, And then we can move forward to thinking about um, where these objects are, uh, what their trajectories are, when um, they might come close to Earth, and if there's any uh, risk of impact. Uh, And then from here, um, you know, we're thinking about um, what would we do? How would we deflect an asteroid? We can really build on the knowledge that we have right now. You know, this is just one test. Uh, and it's taught us a lot. Uh, you know, we used to have no information like this, and now we can really build on what we have now to think about how we might want to approach it. If it's a different kind of asteroid or a different kind of trajectory, uh, various different questions that we can start to put together and really think about what all of our options are if we actually need to deflect an object.
1: Now, Demorphos is, is about 160 meters across, so that's roughly, I, I think, around half the size uh, of the Eiffel Tower from what I've seen, or it's, it's slightly larger than the Statue of Liberty somewhere in between is some of the comparisons I've seen. So if we were talking about right. something bigger, like even Didymos itself, which I think is about almost 800 meters across or even larger than that, how does, how does that varying size or something that is much larger, how does that, that affect or change all of this?
0: Well, I mean, the other factor that we need to consider here is how much time do we have to deflect an object? Uh, If you deflect it really far in advance, then even a really small change will propagate forward in time, and then it becomes a larger change at the moment that you need it to be. Um, And so when we think about the results from DART and specifically this uh, enhancement in the period change that comes from uh, the ejected material, um, we can start to think that like a relatively small spacecraft can actually deflect a larger object than what we originally thought um, or maybe you know on the flip side uh, deflected a little bit later than we originally thought maybe we need a little bit less time and so all of these are factors that come together. Um, but, you know, it, it really depends on how much time we have and how big the spacecraft is going to be. And all of these um, all of these things are going to be considered should we actually have to deflect a larger object.
1: But I mean, big picture here, this is encouraging, right? Because we're, we're not helpless, I think is the takeaway here, in the face of, of this kind of a threat. We know what we're capable of and, and, and we can build from here,
0: right? Exactly, exactly. So it's really exciting uh, to actually have this information so that if we need to use it, Um, we know where to
1: start. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there. Professor Thomas, again, appreciate your insight uh, on all of this, and thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon.
0: Of course. Pleasure
1: to be here. There you go. That's Dr. Christina Thomas at Northern Arizona University, uh, lead investigator on these four studies, uh, nature.com, if you're so inclined to want to read through them. Uh, But, you know, the short version, what is it, the uh, TLDR, as they say? This worked. We identified this space rock. We Shot a rocket at it, the rocket hit the rock, and it slowed its, its orbit by 33 minutes, as it turns out. So that's pretty good. Now, it would be a different challenge, I guess, if it were something much bigger. You know, first step is detecting it. If you don't have enough time to respond, it's all kind of a moot point. So we do need to be aware of where these potential threats are uh, to make sure that we have enough time, if we need to, to, to mount some kind of a response. But this is all very encouraging. We can do this right? It's not just science fiction. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.